Emily Abend, the creative partner for worship at the local church, and you are listening to the Sunday Sermon Podcast featuring the messages from our Sunday liturgy. The local church is a bold and inclusive faith community based in Chatham County, North Carolina. We gather for worship every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. in person at Woods Charter School in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and online via Facebook Live and YouTube. No matter where you find yourself physically, spiritually, or emotionally, you belong at the local church. And we're so glad you're here. Our scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel according to Acts in the New Testament, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Now the apostles and the brothers and sisters who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also accepted the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him, saying, Why did you go to uncircumcised men and eat with them? Then Peter began to explain it to them, step by step, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. There was something like a large sheet coming down from heaven, being lowered by its four corners, and it came close to me. As I looked at it closely, I saw four-footed animals, beasts of prey, reptiles, and birds of the air. I also heard a voice saying to me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But I replied, By no means, Lord, for nothing profane or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a second time, the voice answered from heaven, When God has made clean, you must, <clears throat> what God has made clean, you must not call profane. This happened three times. Then everything was pulled up again to heaven. At that very moment, three men sent to me from Caesarea arrived at the house where we were. The Spirit told me to go with them and not to make a distinction between them and us. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will give you a message by which you and your entire household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as it had upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same gift that he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could hinder God? When they heard this, they were silenced, and they praised God, saying, Then God has given even to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. This is the word of God for all of God's creation. Thanks be to God. Gracious and loving God, you are indeed making all things new, and we long for the day when there will be no more mourning or crying or pain, where you will wipe away every tear, and all things are indeed new. Make that so in us today, O God. Send your spirit upon us as it came upon Peter and the Gentiles in Joppa. Let it fall and and, and transform us from the inside out, O God. Open our eyes, our ears, our hearts. Let this time matter, 
Oh God. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus, who is God with us. Amen. Put a picture up. Who knows what this is? Yeah? Yeah, what is it, John? That's right, it's the black hole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got a breaking news alert on my phone this week uh, with this picture. It's called uh, Sagittarius A-Star. Sagittarius A-Star. And uh, it's our galaxy's black hole. I am not cut out in any way, shape, or form to fully explain what a black hole is. Um, But what I have learned this week is that black holes were predicted by Albert Einstein when he introduced his theory of relativity. Uh, And what we know is that a black hole is an area in space where the gravity is pulling so much that it can bend light and warp space and distort time. There's, There's so much gravity that no light can escape, and that's why it's called a black hole. This one in particular, Sagittarius A star, sits in the center of our Milky Way galaxy. Every galaxy has a black hole at its center. I learned so much this week. What you're seeing here is the first ever image of ours. The first ever image of ours, revealed by scientists around the world this week, the product of 300 researchers at 80 institutions who work together to create a global network of 11 telescopes to assemble this one image. It's like the most expensive picture ever, probably. <laughs> and this is, this is a big deal. In astronomy, there's, there's only been one other image of a black hole, one that's outside of our galaxy, 55 million light years away. This one is, is a little bit closer, only about 27,000 light years away. And this is a big deal, not only because of what this image could teach scientists and astronomers and researchers about the physics of black holes and about space and the cosmic origins of our own universe, but it's also a big deal because an image like this one has been elusive for quite some time. Because black holes are such that no light can escape, getting a picture of our own black hole was thought to be near impossible until now. In fact, this is what I found so fascinating, uh, maybe because this was the part that I could actually understand, but scientists have been working uh, on getting an image like this since 1967, when a physicist named James Bardeen hypothesized that a black hole could indeed be visible. And he even correctly predicted that it would look something like this. And ever since then, astronomers and physicists and researchers have been working to figure out how to make the invisible visible. They've been working to make concrete what they only knew in the abstract. They've been working to fine-tune their measurements and adjust their wavelengths and all of the things to try to bring this image into focus. And that's why this is such a big deal. But even now, as you can see, this image of Sagittarius A-star, our galaxy's black hole, still isn't very clear, right? And in some ways, that's because of the nature of the black hole. There's gas around the black hole that's moving so fast, it's hard to get a clear shot. One scientist who work on, worked on this project said that it was, quote, like, uh, a bit like trying to take a clear picture of a puppy quickly chasing its tail, just moving so fast. And this gives them their challenge going forward to make it clearer. They're going to continue to fine-tune and test and adjust to continue to see a clearer picture. The next goal, apparently, is to try to capture a moving image and start to see that gas that's moving with clearer focus, with more clarity. 
And this is a great first step. Believe it or not, this all brings me to Peter. Of course. Just like last week, uh, the passage that John read this morning is again from the Acts of the Apostles. And as I mentioned last week, Acts is essentially the sequel to Luke's gospel. It's Luke part two. Um, uh, and, uh, and it tells the story of Jesus' friends and followers after his ascension to the Father and the descending of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, which we'll celebrate in just a couple weeks. And it narrates how the Holy Spirit acts, see, acts in the lives of those followers of Jesus and all those they encounter. I mentioned this last week, but uh, uh, um, as one friend put it, and I've loved this description of Acts uh, for as long as I've heard it, he said, Acts is like uh, the story, Acts tells the story of a people trying to put a bike together while riding it. They're trying to put a bike together while riding it. So we meet Peter, who has just returned to Jerusalem from Joppa. And if you remember, Joppa had been where uh, Peter had raised Tabitha Dorcas from the dead, which we heard last week. And he ends up staying there for a little while. And and while he's there, he has this incredible experience, which he's now relaying back in Jerusalem. You heard John read it this morning, but it's worth hearing again because it's wild. Peter describes how he was on a rooftop in Joppa praying when all of a sudden, He becomes entranced and has this vision of a sheet coming down from heaven. I like to call it a holy sheet, by the way. (laughs) Just going to wait, let that, a holy sheet. You get it? You get it? You're like, yeah, I get it. I get it. It's not funny. But anyway, on this sheet, on this sheet, there are, uh, on this holy sheet, there are all kinds of animals, four-footed creatures, reptiles, and birds. And if that's not strange enough, he then hears a voice that says, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter responds, no, I'm not going to do that. For nothing profane or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice replies, what God has made clean, you must not call profane. What God has made clean, you must not call profane. This whole exchange happened three times, at which point everything is then taken up again into heaven. And no sooner had this holy sheet disappeared that there was a knock at the door, and at the door there, um, there are three men sent for Peter by a centurion named Cornelius. And they've come to take Peter back to Caesarea with them. The Spirit tells Peter, the Spirit, there she is again, tells Peter to go with them, and so he does. And, and when they arrive at the house of Cornelius, they greet one another Peter begins to speak there, and the Holy Spirit falls on them. And they're baptized, welcomed into the family of God. And now what you need to know is that those who gathered there to listen to Peter relay this story, tell uh, tell about his encounter, they're not just there for a trip report. They're not there to to kick back and drink wine and, and look at slides, right? They're there with some tough questions for Peter. And that's because here in Jerusalem are Jewish followers of Jesus. That's who's gathered there with Peter, Jewish followers of Jesus. And we know this because Luke refers to them as circumcised believers. To be circumcised is essentially to be marked by God in a physical way and thus marked as a part of God's chosen people. And it also means that as a Jew, you're expected to adhere to certain purity laws, like what animals you can and can't eat or who you can eat with. All of these rules and customs and laws aren't necessarily there for their own sake. They're not there for legalistic reasons only. Rather, they're meant to instead maintain the integrity of their faith. 
These customs give their Jewish faith a certain standing. These laws and rituals have helped to give them their identity as the people of God, as Israel. Are you with me? Gentiles, a term for those who aren't Jewish, were not circumcised, and thus, to this point, not considered part of God's family. They were considered outsiders. Peter was a Jewish follower of Jesus, and that would mean not only that he was circumcised, but that he was also expected to adhere to these laws. And the Jewish followers of Jesus there in Judea had heard about how Peter had entered Cornelius' house, a Gentile, and eaten with them. He'd shared a table with other Gentiles. And so to them, he had thus betrayed their sacred covenant. He'd broken the laws. And they want to know why. And underneath this question are other questions, serious questions to them with high stakes. I think sometimes when we hear stories like this on this side, this much time having passed from now to then, we have a tendency to oversimplify these conversations and this conflict. We reduce it to simply choosing sides and trying to determine who's right and who's wrong and then what side we're going to be on, right? But if we listen closely, we might actually hear echoes of these questions that are still asked today. What those with Peter really want to know is if fellowship with the Gentiles would weaken the faith. Would it weaken their commitment to the faith? Would it somehow compromise what they've believed? Ultimately, would so much mixing result in their faith and thus their identity being lost? Would this impurity begin a slippery slope of becoming scattered to nothingness? Would it be the beginning of the end of God's people? These are the questions that are behind that question. Why'd you do what you did? The thing is, Peter would have carried these same questions too. Because this whole experience would have thrown everything Peter thought he knew into flux. He would have realized that this whole experience is pointing to a new reality because he would have begun to see that this experience wasn't necessarily about animals or food, but about people. Ones who've been labeled profane, but who God calls good. It would have been a moment of crisis for him. As this experience with the sheet and the voice and the visit to Cornelius and the table fellowship, all at the Spirit's leading, it all slams right up against everything he's ever known. Everything that he's been taught, the life he's lived, the the worldview that he's constructed and the moral ethic he's ascribed to, to this point. It's a crisis of faith, and Peter is faced with a seemingly impossible task. How do you reconcile a faith you've known with a faith that's becoming known? How do you reconcile a faith you've known with one that is becoming known? How do you reconcile the seen with the unseen? In other words, how do you hold on to that which has given you grounding and anchored you and given you identity your whole life, while at the same time you can't shake the feeling that God is inviting you to do something new that just also happens to be the complete opposite? What do you do when the word of God flies in the face of the word of God? How do you reconcile that? 
Peter does the only thing he can do in that moment. He tells a story. He tells a story. He tells them about the sheet and the animals and about what God has made clean. We shouldn't call profane. He describes the visit to Cornelius' house and the meal and the preaching and how the spirit fell and how they were all baptized. And at the end, it's as if Peter says, look, y'all, I get it. (laughs) I have those questions too, but you got to take it up with the Holy Spirit. You got to take it up with God. I can only tell you what I've experienced that we were better together, that something new happened, that, and, and, and nothing was compromised. In fact, it was enriched and enhanced and made more beautiful than I could ever imagine. That God showed up big time, y'all, and, and is doing something new, that they're a part of the family now, and if, if then God gave them that gift, the gift we got when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could hinder God? In other words, who am I to stand in the way. Who am I to stand in the way of what God's doing? This was Peter's mic drop moment. And they were silent. And then they started praising God. They celebrated. The Jewish followers of Jesus in that moment were made new. This was their resurrection. This was their resurrection. There's so many things I love about this story. I love this question, who am I to stand in God's way? And I wonder how often we do that when we cling so tightly to customs and norms and rules and beliefs that we fail to err on the side of love and compassion and grace, that we inhibit the new thing that God might be doing. How often do we stand in God's way? I also love that Peter doesn't come back at them with a well-formulated argument and a whole bunch of PowerPoint slides about Gentile inclusion. Instead, he simply shares what he's experienced. He shares his story, what helped him see that it wasn't about rules or customs or animals or food, but about people. And it's, and it's his testimony, his lived experience that moved him from the abstract to the particular, from the hypothetical to the human. It changes their hearts and minds and reorients them to the work of the Spirit. It helps them see what they couldn't before. And they can't argue with his story, can they? And last, I love that Peter doesn't wait to move in the direction of love until he's figured it all out. The Spirit tells him to eat or to go to Cornelius' home. Radical things. He doesn't shrink back and default to old patterns. In the same way, he doesn't go home and double down on his certainty, pulling out those passages from the Hebrew Bible that would simply reinforce what he's always believed. Instead, he simply says yes to God and opens himself up to the Holy Spirit, to the presence and power of God at work, perhaps remembering his experience with Jesus, who Jesus ate with, who Jesus welcomed, who Jesus touched, who he healed, and how, and how he lived with arms outstretched. How he lived and how he died and how he lives again with arms wide open. Peter didn't hesitate. He just said yes. It's this yes creating a pathway to a new experience that has brought substantive positive change to the church. In the 18th century, John Wesley, who's going to be on the left of this picture, John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, was among the earliest to allow women to preach in the church for this very reason. 
because of how he and others experienced the Spirit moving in and through their preaching. He essentially said, who am I to stand in God's way? That risk-taking, tradition-defying yes made way for something new. I wouldn't be in ministry today if it weren't for women preachers. And there are similar questions raised now in many Christian circles about the inclusion of queer persons. Should they be ordained? Should they be married? Here at the local church, inclusivity is one of our core values. And we affirm the sacred worth, the belonging, the full participation of all persons, period. But part of being an inclusive community is also recognizing that that people may be at different places, having been taught different things to this point. I remember sharing a meal with somebody a few years ago who was working this out, something I'm always happy to do with you if you have similar questions. This person had grown up being taught that, that being gay was a sin. He had all the scripture to back it up and could recall it with ease. And for him, like the Jewish followers of Jesus there in Jerusalem, what was at stake was his identity, his foundation, a worldview constructed, a whole life there. And he found himself at a similar crossroads as that of Peter. And as we were talking about LGBTQ plus inclusion, I was sharing my story of how I got to be where I am as an affirming follower of Jesus. I remember he said to me, I'm just not there yet. At which point I said, ah, yet, good. Because that means you're moving. It means God's not finished yet. It means you're on the way. So you remember this picture? Maybe you've long hypothesized that something is there, but you just couldn't see it yet. Or maybe today you're seeing something new, and even if you can't explain it fully, it's still breathtaking. Maybe for you, the image could still stand to be a little bit clearer, and so you'll continue to test and adjust and refine your measurements to bring it into sharper focus. This is the life that Peter embodies. A life of faith is all about evolution. A life of faith is all about evolution. And what Peter demonstrates is not to be afraid of that evolution, but to embrace it, to say yes to it, because because we're all better for it. In the words of St. Anselm, the 11th century, ours is a faith seeking understanding. A faith seeking understanding. Saying yes to the Spirit is like fine-tuning these measurements and adjusting wavelengths until that picture becomes ever clearer. And the whole world is made new again. Hey, it's Leah again. If you love what you hear, share this episode or send it to someone who could use a little good news this week. We'd also love for you to leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. For more information about the local church, visit thelocalchurchpbo.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at localchurchpbo. Until next time, love where you are.